Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and we are live in Huntsville, Alabama. All right. Well, uh, my name is C.R. Wiley, and I am a pastor in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, but I find myself in Huntsville, Alabama every once in a while because I have a close relationship with the church here. And uh, one of the things we like to do when we're in town is uh, have a live podcast or, or a podcast before a live audience. So that's what we're doing tonight. So as I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley. I've written some books. I've uh, been a professor of philosophy. I've been a home improvement contractor and I've been a real estate investor. But that's enough about me. Uh, let's uh, go to the other guys. Why don't we have you... Tom, introduce yourself. Uh, Tom Price. I teach uh, Christian theology, ethics, and apologetics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Great. Glenn. Glenn Sunshine, a retired history professor, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Okay. Well, uh, as uh, regular listeners to the show know when we don't have uh, a guest to interview, we uh, each take turns uh, determining the topic of the day and then introduce the topic and then who knows where it goes. And that's what we got again today. And today is my day. And I decided to uh, dip into a subject that perhaps in reform circles, even in the larger world of Protestantism, uh, will bring a set of things to mind that people will find almost impossible to reconcile with the Christian faith. If you know what I'm getting at, you know what I'm talking about, and that subject is asceticism. <laughs> and I want to talk about what I see as the new asceticism, and what I'm getting at is there are a number of things that are kind of um, uh, sort of coming to the surface in different places and some surprising places, calling for self-denial. Uh, there are programs that are developing in, in the manosphere to encourage guys to uh, sort of uh, get off of the pornography addiction or get away from it. Uh, and they're not Christian in character. They're just uh, doing it for other reasons. Um, there have been, of course, uh, movements to help people uh, break away from addictions uh, to drugs alcohol, etc. cetera. Uh, there are even our programs now or, or efforts to help people uh, wean themselves off of their smartphones. Mm -hmm. So this, this, these developments uh, have occurred, as I noted, just in the larger culture, not in the Christian subculture. And uh, they've occurred, I think, for the reason that people might assume would be the reason they wouldn't occur. And what I'm getting at is, is we live in a, a totally uh, sensually saturated world today. And because that's the case, I think people assume uh, that no one would be interested in self-denial if they weren't a Christian monk. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think partly uh, it's also uh, because people are unfamiliar with the history of asceticism. Asceticism isn't something that Christians invented. Uh, it was more or less already sort of pretty prevalent within the classical world. Um, and we can get into some of the movements that promoted asceticism in the classical world. 
But uh, anyway, that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about the new asceticism, and in particular, I, I, I kind of want to dig into the, I think, problem that we as Christians will have, particularly in, in Protestantism, reconciling ourselves to this moment in which people want to, to kind of break free uh, from their sort of uh, the sensuality and uh, the uh, kind of the carnal character of our time. It's, it's, we're, in a weird, we're in a weird spot, particularly as, as Protestants and, and, and people who are Reformed in, in faith, because when we think about asceticism, who do we think about? Martin Luther, right? And all of the things that we associate with asceticism with regard to Martin Luther as sort of, uh, you know, a kind of bondage that he had to be, had to be freed from in order to, so that he could un, sort of appreciate the, the riches of the Christian faith and the, the goodness of the gospel and so forth. And so we've created this kind of antithesis uh, in which we think, well, uh, asceticism is bondage. And the gospel is freedom. And I, I think that's how we, we tend to think about it. And the world that we live in today uh, is actually, I think, rediscovering uh, the kind of asceticism that actually predates the Christian faith, goes back to the cynics and so forth. But anyway, uh, yeah, guys have any thoughts on, on the subject, uh, anything that can, maybe comes to mind? Tom? Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm happy to jump I'll, in. I'll, I'm just saying, but I thought I wanted to give you first crack. I'll, I'll start taking it into strange directions. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right <clears throat> when you mention the fact that that asceticism goes back a long ways, and you find it in the in the ancient world. You find it among all the varieties, I think, of cultures and, and religious traditions, uh, some forms of it, and some forms, of course, that aren't compatible with the Christian faith, but the other forms that uh, early on the church recognized is, is a, a very significant part of what it means to be a human creature and have the natures that we have, and especially in light of the fall, the need for certain ways of disciplining our life so that those those larger gifts are able to be exercised in, in a fuller sense. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, there, there's different ways of conceiving the notion of self-denial and there are different motivations for why people will indulge it. Um, but there are definitely a large amount of benefits that come just in the direction of being able to take some of our um, instincts and appetites, if you will, and orient them in ways that are maximally um, beneficial to us versus becoming almost enslaved to um, baser elements. And so maybe that's a good way to kind of kick off where to begin is that, that we have appetites as human beings, and as Christians, we know these appetites are fallen, but I think you will see in the classical world, we recognize that if certain of our appetites are left alone, they gravitate towards things that are destructive of us. And um, so the ancient world saw very clearly that these things need to be brought under some kind of discipline in, in a higher orientation in order for us not to be so destructive and actually to, to enter in higher ways of living. 
Right. I, I like the way you, you've approached that, Tom, in terms of uh, kind of uh, sort of opening up space in our lives for higher, you know, sort of more, more uh, uh, significant, meaningful pursuits. Uh, they don't, it doesn't necessarily mean those other pursuits are meaningless or worthless. It's just there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> you know, and so and if you're going to pursue, say, prayer in a serious way, you've got to make time for that. You've got to deny other things in your life in order to open the space for it. You know, so that's an example. Yeah, Glenn. Well, you know, when you take a look at the Roman Empire, um, I would modify what Tom said somewhat in that your philosophers are going to be arguing for, you know, some form of self-control and things like that. But the overall culture was not one that was really big on self-denial. Right. Um, Rome was famously a, a, a gluttonous culture, you know, where they would have rooms where you would go to, to cause yourself to vomit so you could go back and eat more if you were wealthy enough to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they had, they were called vomitorium, in fact. Um, <laughs> Going to the vomitorium. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but it was also a culture that was way, way oversexed. In a lot of ways, a lot like our culture. You know, yeah. When you look at the epidemic of obesity and when you look at the epidemic of pornography and, and all of the other stuff that's associated with it, in a lot of ways, it's a lot like Rome. Now, Christianity comes along. And what does Christianity do? Well, the early church, we know from the Didache, um, fasted two days a week, um, Wednesdays and Fridays. Wednesday because it was the day that Judas betrayed Christ to the Pharisees and the the, uh, Sanhedrin. uh, Friday because it was the day he was crucified. And fasting to them meant you didn't eat anything until three in the afternoon, which was the time Jesus died. Okay. They did that twice a week, every week, without fail. Right. That was that was a kind of ascetic discipline that most Romans, I mean, I, I think they they you know they, the ones who served in the military and such would understand the purpose of that. Right. But but your average Roman citizen would have found that a little bit on the bizarre side. Then on top of that, um, Christians had this really weird sexual ethic. They said you could only have sex in the context of monogamous marriage. You couldn't have sex with your slaves. You, 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 know, you couldn't you have sex with little boys. You couldn't do any of this stuff. That was a really out, way out of the norm within the Roman Empire. And from their perspective, sexual continence would have been an ascetic discipline, just like the fasting was. Yeah, well, let, let's stop, let's stop here and just think a couple about a couple of things. I, I do think we have a parallel, obviously, as you've noted, with the the empire at, at its most uh, debased, you know, sort of uh, expression with with the sensuality and and so forth of the time. Uh, obviously, that's the case today. Uh, what what actually inspired uh, this uh, uh, conversation for me introducing this particular topic was a, was an article by Matthew B. Crawford, mm-hmm. who, uh, who uh, is famous for his book, Shop Classes, Soulcraft. He's continued to be a public, you know, to write uh, as a public intellectual. Um, he's a guy, obviously, that I've got a lot of fondness for because he's a motorcycle mechanic, 
a licensed electrician, and a, he has a, a doctorate in philosophy from the University of Chicago. <laughs> so, you know, he's that he's that he's a blue collar intellectual, and he's also he he grew up in Berkeley, California, the son of Berkeley professors. So he grew up in this uber liberal environment, and uh, he rebelled by. Uh, subscribing to Soldier of Fortune magazine and becoming a mechanic. Uh, so uh, in some ways, I, I kind of identify with his his history because I have the same kind of bohemia, bohemian background. Uh, but he was not reflecting uh, so much upon the, the Christian uh, experience in, in the early church so much as he was on uh, some developments in the manosphere. You know, that part of the Internet where we talk about alpha males and so forth and red pills and black pills and stuff like that. Yeah. And Chris, Chris, one second yeah. before, before you go there. Yeah. I think my point in bringing up what was going on within the early church was really not aimed. I'm aware of what's going on in the manosphere, but it was aimed at the Protestants who think asceticism is, is right. bad and weird. Mm-hmm. The right. fact is the early church didn't see it that way. And the way they understood asceticism in so many different ways is exactly the sort of thing that we should be doing in our culture today. Oh, I agree. Jesus Jesus says, you know, when you fast, do the following, not if. Yeah. So so that's actually kind of baked into the early church. Now, it has a different expression within the manosphere, but that was the point I was trying to make to my fellow Protestants. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and I like your your point with with regard to when you fast, not if you fast. Hmm. Like I've, I've brought up fasting in in various reformed circles, and it's it's like I, I just never do that. It's like that's what Catholics do. I mean, that's what yeah. people who are trying to earn their salvation do. I mean, why would I want to do that? I mean, I'm all about you know enjoying the the blessings of marital life and enjoying the you know the the fruit of the field and. <laughs> and the and the full glass. <laughs> you know, I'm a Protestant. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not here all that stuff. <laughs> but uh, Jesus doesn't give us a way of weaseling out of this. He, he you know, the, basically, it's when you fast, not if you fast. Or he doesn't say, okay, when the Catholics fast, uh, you guys who are Protestants will get a, a pass. <laughs> In other words, there's, there's a logic to this, and so I want to get into the logic of it. But I I also want to get into the logic of it from the standpoint of kind of nature. Yeah. So, so here we have, uh, as far as I know, Matthew Crawford, I, I think he has, uh, he's got a sympathetic, uh, sort of outlook when it comes to the Western tradition and the role of theology and metaphysics in that. But I don't, I don't know if he's a, a Christian, but he thought it was remarkable that there's this movement to, uh, abstain from pornography, uh, among people who are not religious, and they're promoting it. Uh, I think it's the month of October or November uh, that that this is a, kind of a thing every year. And um, he noted that, that, you know, in his treatment, that oddly, um, feminists and progressives are alarmed at this development. They think that this is evidence of fascism. <laughs> <laughs> they see fascism everywhere under every <laughs> under every bush. You know, they, it is, but in their mind, this is this is fascist. And he actually digs into the history of the sexual revolution and, and demonstrates, I think, convincingly, that the sexual revolution was designed to undermine many of the traditions and uh, ways of life, and even the family order 
uh, with the, you know, sort of the explicit uh, purpose of kind of promoting a left-wing way of thinking and a left-wing psychology that would be popularized. So the fact that people are denying themselves is a problem from the standpoint of the left. Yeah, and there, there's actually starting with Wilhelm Reich, uh, who was a sometime member of the uh, Frankfurt School, mm-hmm. and uh, the guy who actually coined the term uh, sexual revolution. Um, he was a Marxist and a Freudian. Yeah. And you get this, this kind of weird combination of Freud and Marxism that ends up being a lot of the intellectual foundation for what goes on in the sexual revolution, and for that matter, uh, is at the root of, of modern critical theory. Yeah, so uh, Crawford gets into all of that in this piece. It's, it was published in Unheard. It's a, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes. But uh, what that did is it got me thinking about uh, the aesthetic sort of practices that um, are, are reviving as a kind of liberation movement and what are what are we what are people seeking to be free from? They're seeking to be free from the sort of destructive impulses mm-hmm. of their of their own bodily nature uh, that are excited and uh, manipulated by social and political forces. Social forces, obviously, economic forces, where people are profiting off of pornography and so forth. But also, uh, the political forces that are eating away at the fabric of our society. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that the the sort of the uh, the left is correct uh, in one sense. This is a threat to their political aspirations. Uh, is it fascist? Of course not. It's that's a nutty, uh, you know, sort of connection that's being made. But anything they don't like is fascist. <laughs> that, that, that's kind of the thing we need to keep in mind. We, 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 we can't allow ourselves to be intimidated by, by, by the names people use when they are attacking us. Well, we just, and I think that, I think fascist is definite. I mean, it, it, it plays, it's playing a role here to create the kind of, to create a kind of psychology among a people to have a certain kind of trigger that anything that looks like or feels like what they're trying to basically uproot and undermine, um, it, they label with these terms and, and fascist, of course, or racist or any any of these any of these ugly terms that have ugly histories behind them um, carry a lot of, enough baggage with them that if you can make it stick on something that you don't like, you can turn the disgust towards that history, towards this maybe created good that they want to undermine because they have, you know, they have a certain agenda. And so the propaganda works very strongly. And you you see it in the article very well, where this notion of fascist and anti-fascist become become the a drumbeat almost that keeps getting, you know, a rhythm that keeps getting played just about in every context so that with the family, with human sexuality, with, um, you know, the created order, um, there is a kind of ripping at the, at the God-given boundaries, if you will, to, to create this fluidity and in doing so basically destroy the civilization that has been built up upon that. And uh, yeah. it, it is, I mean, to me, it's very demonic. Um, yeah. it, it, I think that's, there, there's no... 
putting Freud in with Marx like that is about as demonic as you can get. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when when you actually understand how they do it, it, it it gets a little bit bizarre, but um, I think the, the, the part that they, the reason why I think they identified as fascist isn't just name calling. They actually, I think, think that they see something there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, What there's a call for is male self-discipline. Yeah. And that, to their minds, connects to militarism. Yeah, yeah. And all of those things tie together to fascism. I think, you know, that that's sort of the short version of the connections. But I think that that's what they're seeing. That, that's what they're afraid of. Yeah. They shouldn't be. But that's, I think that's how it, it, it moves for them. Well, let's think a little bit about male self-discipline, because I think uh, there's not an, any alarm about women uh, denying themselves. The alarm is raised when men do. So what is it about men and self-discipline that is uh, at least implicitly uh, threatening to certain people? Let me just propose a few things. Generally, uh, one of the ways that uh, men are manipulated is through sexual desire. Let's think about uh, an episode in scripture. Um, we have uh, John the Baptist, uh, we have a dancing girl, and we have a, a man who's an authority, right? Uh, the dancing girl pleases the man in authority, and uh, he's so sort of taken with her seductive behavior that he promises her anything she would like. What does she ask for? The head of John the Baptist. The head of the ascetic. <laughs> that's, right. That's, right. that's right. The man that they could not control. Eats locusts. <laughs> yeah, but the, but the thing is, how do you control a guy like that? Yeah. How do you control a man who has such self-command mm-hmm. that you can't, you can't appeal to his appetites to undermine his yeah. self-command? Yeah. He is a powerful figure. Yeah. And... Uh, now, when, uh, you know, this occurs, uh, it's not as though uh, the authority figure wants to give her what she's asked her, but he's been cornered. He's made a promise in a public setting. He's got to deliver. Otherwise, it's going to undermine his own credibility in this larger sphere. But uh, a man who has self-command is perhaps the most powerful kind of person there is, physically, intellectually. Uh, Think about the various ways in which God has endowed men, generally speaking. We tend to be taller. We tend to be stronger. We tend to have voices that uh, make people uncomfortable. Like one of the things that I learned early on is that uh, dogs know the difference between men and women. Uh, they're not at all confused. Uh, generally speaking, <laughs> ge- generally speaking, nowadays they are. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe if they're highly educated dogs that attend Harvard. But uh, generally speaking, when a man enters uh, a room with a dog, the dog will be more skittish, more more uh, prone to be defensive, bark. I remember when we had our dogs, uh, we had three dogs. 
Um, there were there were times where my wife just was not able to command their attention and respect, and that I would have to raise my voice, and immediately they'd cow. <laughs> Why is that? Well, f- I'm physically larger. The uh, vibrations I create in the air are more powerful. Beat upon their eardrums. <laughs> in other words, there are, there are ways in which. Uh, it's it's almost impossible for me not to communicate uh, physical, you know, sort of a, a, an imposing physical uh, presence. I see it even with my granddaughters. Uh, when I'm in the room, they're usually looking at me if they're not looking at their father, if you, if you get my drift. It's almost as though we command attention without even wanting it even wanting to do so. We got the hairy faces. <laughs> we, we got all these, we smell different. <laughs> There's all like kinds trees. of When I talk to my granddaughters, what do I do? I raise my voice. Why do I raise my voice? Hi, because it's less threatening, right? <laughs> if I want to be taken seriously, what do I do? I lower my, now women try to do this. Yep. No, holy Chris, you do that because you're an American. <laughs> okay, no, tell me seriously. Do it for in, in, in England, the pitches are exactly the opposite. The the neutral voice in England is much higher, and they want when they want to emphasize something, they drop the pitch. <laughs> Whereas with us, our neutral voice is low, and when we want to emphasize something, we raise the pitch. But that's not what I'm getting at, uh, Glenn. What but, I'm getting but, at. Well, but but the 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 point the point being the Brits think we always sound like we're angry, and we always think the Brits sound like they're condescending. <laughs> I, I I get it, but that's not what I'm dealing with right now. I'm talking about dogs and children. <laughs> well, mad dogs and Englishmen, it goes together. Um, but, but but the 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 point that you're making about you know the voice of authority is this low pitched thing. Yeah. To the Brits, that's how we talk normally. So th- there's a little bit of cultural stuff that you have to pay attention to here. But but there is a power. There is a power to the to so if for example even British. Uh, officers, when they get up in front of a, you know, a, a group of soldiers and they want to charge, they don't go, let's go, guys. <laughs> you get my point? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I, so I, what I'm trying to get at is sort of the physicality of this, sort of the natural character of this. And and what I, what I'm, what I also think is the case is that what is sort of in the target sites of the left is masculinity, just plain and simple, uh, because we are a threat to their entire program as men. They're, they're okay with uh, men who don't behave ma- in a masculine manner, mm-hmm. but men who do behave in a masculine manner are a problem. But they're, a, they're also a problem that they don't know how to live without. So there are certain things that they do want enforced. There are certain things they do want uh, people to be afraid of. And they need us for those things, but at the same time, there's this tension. Well, there, there is, there's also, I mean, you know, it's driven. There's, there's a, there's a handful of of different threads that they're committed to as ideas that re- remain, I think, um, in place. One would be their commitment to still a Darwinian reading of reality which will will have a kind of survival of the fittest and the strongest, you know, might makes right, if you will. And if if you have 
at the top of the kind of human chain, if you will, um, male dominance in any way, which is something that, that, you know, there is an endowment by nature um, there. Well, well, then that threatens their ideals to kind of alter that kind of evolutionary um, momentum and somehow tame the, the, the top of that chain so that the others begin to have access to, to you know, the power or, or, you know, socially leading or, or whatever else. So, and this is where I think Nietzsche becomes very significant because he, he, he was very aware of this and he saw it almost as a, what he called the Plato slash Christian attempt to trick the the strong in that hierarchy, if you will, into basically submitting out of guilt to the weaker in that that chain, um, and and so I think they're very aware that they they want to play with the the power structure that nature has supplied, however they're defining it, in order to dismantle and weaken the kind what they see as a threat to the rest of of humanity and now to the rest of creation that is the you know the human male and masculinity being the driver of that evolutionary survival so I, i'd like to kind of just address that quickly and then go to uh diogenes the cynic okay <laughs> so so uh with regard to that um that what what that implies is that they they must damage us mm-hmm. in other you know they they must psychologically damage us in order to make room in their thinking for other people to have uh the kind of openness to to sort of like self create that they think uh would be a a good thing so what do we see in public education uh, across the board, what we see in public uh, or, or popular media, we see attempts to psychologically damage men, yeah. to to make them second guess themselves, to to cause them to even call into question their own endowments. Uh, that somehow this is like wrong for me to be stronger than other people or to have uh, to be even t- you know uh, in any sense different than than the people around me. Uh, but anyway. Uh, let's let's go to Diogenes the Cynic. So, and the reason I want to go to Diogenes the Cynic is I think that Diogenes uh, is kind of the fountainhead in the West of asceticism. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with, with cynicism, it's a school of philosophy that, that predates Christianity by several hundred years. And Diogenes uh, was a, known as the barrel philosopher. Um, he, it's because he lived in a, in a big barrel. <laughs> and uh, he, he cultivated a, an approach to life. Um, he was a, uh, a disciple of Plato, if I remember correctly. And uh, essentially, he believed that uh, human institutions and societies create kind of a set of false values that uh, cause people to live in unnatural ways. And that what you really want to do if you if you are in you know in touch with reality is live as close to nature as possible not necessarily meaning um you know out in the wilderness or something like that but just in the sense that you don't become dependent upon uh sort of the social uh benefits of a highly developed civilization so 
you know, he would hardly bathe. Um, <laughs> he would, he would, uh, and, and then the, his, his philosophy, uh, or sort of, uh, sort of the ethical implications of his philosophy is that, uh, included, uh, more or less haranguing people <laughs> uh, and trying to help them see uh, that they were living f- for things that really were not uh, as significant as they had been told they were. So he was trying to call back, call people back to kind of a more simple approach to life. So the cynics were advocates of, of the simple life. Um, and they, they, they thought that, you know, um, they should go about uh, promoting the simple life, but making nuisances of themselves, mm-hmm. <laughs> living in, you know, the way that I'm, I'm describing in public. There's this famous uh, account. It's probably uh, fictional, but it's been passed down to us uh, where Diogenes is actually uh, approached by Alexander the Great. And because, you know, he's famous, you know, Diogenes is famous. Everybody knows who Diogenes is. And uh, Alexander the Great comes to him and, and, uh, says, you know, I, I've got the power to give you anything you want. You know, just ask me f- for, for something and I'll, I'll give it to you. And Di- Diogenes says, move a little bit to the left. You're blocking the sun. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just kind of sunbathing there near his barrel. <laughs> but uh, the cynic, this is where we get the term cynicism, of course. Uh, but the, the term cynic actually uh, has its origin in the Greek word for dog. Serbius, you know, and all that. Uh, Their their, their hero was Hercules of all people. Um, But uh, anyway, so they they were also seen to be the uh, sort of the antecedent to Stoicism. So the Stoics, uh, I think it was Zeno. Was it Cleisthes? I can't remember if I've had that pronunciation right, but I think it was... uh, a disciple of uh, Diogenes that actually became Zeno's uh, mentor and that led to the development of Stoicism. But anyways, it's a fairly significant movement, but they were all about self-denial in a very sort of sex-saturated society. Anyway, any thoughts on Diogenes the Cynic and asceticism before Christians show up on the scene? (laughs) Well, you know, you don't only have to go into the Greco-Roman world. If you go to India, it right. gets even more extreme. You know, yeah. the, uh, the, the Jains and others are, you know, frankly, they leave Diogenes in the dust in terms of their level of asceticism. <laughs> yeah, laying on um, beds of nails and stuff. <laughs> yeah, and this in turn, interestingly enough, comes back to Greece after Alexander the Great. Mm. Um, Alexander went there with uh, one of the guys that was with him um, was a man named Pyrrho. Mm-hmm. Right. And Pyrrho, like all the Greeks, thought that logic, logos, uh, rationality, all of these kinds of things were at the center of the universe. And when he got to India, uh, they believed ignorance was at the center of the universe. <laughs> these naked, the, 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 as they, they're known as these naked holy men. You know, they, right. that's what the Indians, uh, an Indian philosopher I know refers to them as that. And Pyrrho couldn't believe this and uh, actually apparently got into debates with them and he found he couldn't out-debate them. And so he ended up coming back to Greece as a skeptic. Um, 
uh, actually starts what is probably the most important school of skepticism, if, if that makes any sense at all, uh, to have a school of skepticism. <laughs> but that, that came from these extreme ascetics who, in rejecting the world, also rejected thought, rejected ideas, rejected yeah. logic, rejected all of that. That in, in India, it could go in that direction. Now, not all of them go there, but it, in their extreme form, it can, it can head to that. Yeah, I'd like to re reflect on that a little bit, but I know Tom has something he wanted to say. Well, I think you you see that also in the West with, I mean, the Neoplatonic traditions and, and the like, some of the sort of cults that grew up mixed kind of religious with philosophical dimensions. They were very wed together anyway in that world, but really the, the mystical, the, the moving into, you know, being beyond being and that there, there is a climbing from the lowest, which is the material, to the highest, which is the spiritual. And so there are all these practices bound up with unknowing and, uh, and, and bringing one to a kind of ecstatic, if you will, union with the source of all things. But there's a whole series of these practices of self-denial, um, fasting, and a lot of excessive um, you know, I mean, St. Augustine was very attracted to this. I mean, for oh, yeah. first, before he was a Christian, he was very much, you know, he, he was very plagued by a lot of guilt tied to his sensuality and materiality. And so when he found groups like the Manichaeans and, and, and the like, um, he found that as kind of a first step towards um, some an insight that led him to Christianity, but he still found it very wanting because it definitely took it to these extreme places. And so you tended to have the, you know, with, with Christianity on the scene, you tended to have that, you know, kind of imbalances. You either have, you know, asceticism going into extreme directions um, or you, you, you see it kind of um, basically, uh, you know, the opposite, the, the indulgent and, and the, you know, excessive gratification from the material world. Yeah, this is a great parallel to our time. Uh, and one of the reasons that I wanted to take this up as a, as a topic, um, because we have so little, uh, we give so little uh, sort of, uh, in, or we have so little interest in asceticism, we might find ourselves in the odd place or the odd spot of missing an evangelistic opportunity that's afforded to us uh, in a society that is so sex saturated that it's sick of it. <laughs> and we're like, you know, you know, no, you shouldn't be sick of that. Why don't you just kind of, uh, kind of go with it? <laughs> because you're gonna, you know what I'm saying. You know, so let's take, let's take Augustine as an example. Here's a guy who uh, was deeply affected by the biography of Saint Anthony. You know, so here's a guy who's, a, you know, an ascetic who's living in the Egyptian wilderness, and yeah. and you know, he thinks. Look at that. I, I, I'm so impressed with that. Now, today, we, you know, it seems almost impossible to relate to that. But I think we're on the cusp of maybe seeing a, a, a new thing to, uh, sort of emerge where people are just so sated that they're sick. They're just sick of it. And uh, can we speak to these people? Um, do we have any way of encouraging them? Are, are, we, are, are we in a position to say, you know, you're onto something here yeah. um, without like endorsing the strange stuff <laughs> we're yeah. talking about here. 
Well, I, I think, I, I mean, it's, I'll use, I'll borrow Charles Taylor's term, the imminent frame. He was very notorious for talking about that, where all higher purposes kind of got locked in a universe that had no transcendence. And, and, and really materiality and indulgence starts to make sense in, in that world. And it, of course, it gets exploited for a whole host of reasons as well. And we have as part of, I think, our fallen nature's kind of a uh, uh, inclinations and instincts that like to move in those directions. So we have a lot of things driving, driving um, that that focus. And then, then, th- but on the flip side, the the ascetic traditions um, and some of these kind of signs we're starting to see, um, where people are 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 realizing that there is a kind of limit to what is beneficial to us by continuing down the paths we've been going. And there is, there is a, a nihilism, I think, at the heart of pursuing those things as well. And I don't know that, that these movements have gotten to the place where they recognize that. Um, but, you know, um, but I think one of the things is that we do have here an actual genuine place at which the, the point of transcendence in the gospel, I think, is very relevant to this ascetic dimension. I mean, one of the things about the early church is it took over the the, the practices of virtue and ascetics in a Christian light, um, and because they they began to see the school of virtue and and being in Christ as as two sides of the same coin. And one of the things that the ascetic practices emphasize in in ancient church was the way in which we actually do through these disciplines partake something of the eternal. In, in the historical now, which is our fuller, our fuller reality anyway. Even as fallen creatures, we're created for that even though we rebel against it. And so when we do, we are, you know, they, the early church would talk about it basically is the ascetical and the eschatological are, are basically the same thing. And so we are, as Christians, participating now through certain kinds of practices in the eternal being that we have in Christ. We get a to taste the eternal in the now through doing that. And it is a linking of the transcendent and the eminent, the heavenly and the earthly. So I do think there, this is a ripe place for where the God of the gospel and transcendence breaks into what is otherwise an imminent frame of our time. Yeah, I think that the, the thing I'm observing is uh, not um, obviously as... Uh, metaphysically rich is what you're describing. (laughs) What what I'm saying is guys who are sick and tired of being manipulated by advertising and sick and tired of being dominated by their lower natures. So let's, let's think about, let's think about this. Yeah. I think, I think maybe I gave a a, a too big a picture there, but I, I think that was the point about the imminent frame running into the nihilistic and, and, and has nowhere really else to go. Other than, I mean, there's nowhere else for it to go. Where where do men go after they've indulged all of these things and become become slaves to their lower appetites? And and I think they're they're realizing that it's destructive of them and yeah, and I, existence. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think that most of them make the connection to the transcendent. They that's mostly right. thinking yeah. about, uh, yeah. you know, I, I I'm miserable. Uh, and I need to get, I need to break free from this stuff. The, the thing that's interesting is if you look at ancient Gnosticism, 
Uh, and here we've got to get at least a little bit metaphysical. The Gnostics believed that the thing that was fundamental about reality was the non-physical. Um, in a lot of ways, what we have today with um, particularly transgenderism, but all the other stuff coming out of the sexual revolution and some other areas as well, is a kind of neo-Gnosticism. The physical world, the objective world, all of that doesn't really matter. The way this played out in ancient Gnosticism is one of two things would happen. They would either go the ascetic route that Tom was talking about, or they would go to complete libertinism. Mm. You know, since the body doesn't matter, since the body is irrelevant to the soul, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so it could go in either direction. And I think in in our modern neo-gnostic quasi-pagan type world, I think that the second of these, the the um, libertinism, for lack of a better word, has been dominant, but it doesn't surprise me to start seeing a counter movement in the other direction. Yeah. Because the counter movement could very well be based on the same premise, that what's most important is what you are on the inside. So let's strengthen that, develop our will, develop all of this yeah. kind of thing. That could very easily be coming out of that same kind of worldview. Well, that's... The beauty of Christianity, historically, is that it rejected both of these in a very real way. It rejected the libertinism, certainly, because it, it called for strict morality, but it did not go to the extreme of asceticism that you could run into with the Gnostics in that it recognized the good of marriage. It recognized the, the good gifts of creation as gifts of God, but it refused to let them control you because the eye was not on the imminent, it was on the transcendent. You, you made a very uh, significant point there when you talked about the way in which this could go. And, and and I think when you talked about the strengthening of the will, is there definitely could be a voluntaristic outcome to this kind of thing, which I think would be be the kind of dangerous turn this could take. And maybe this is the kind of thing that that the kind of the worry uh, behind the left and 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 those other movements. This is where they make the connection with fascism, because if you do develop this in a voluntaristic way where it's it is about strengthening the dominance of one's one's capacity to exercise their will over things not merely self-governing but 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 governing and and ruling and dominating um that that's where you could see you know a lot of the the fear come in versus like glenn said when there is a balanced ascetic something Christianity has contributed in, in a much richer and fuller way. It isn't an either or between um, the earthly and the heavenly, if you will. But there is a way, it, even in our own uh, natures, of, of bringing about that kind of self-governance that weans us from those unhealthy appetites serving, you know, our lesser natures, if you will, and allows us to, to actually have a kind of freedom that allows us to enact truthfully the goods of creation in ways that cause the right kind of flourishing and and uh, results, um, you know, the perfecting of our natures. So let, let me let me just sort of uh, uh, develop a little bit uh, what Matthew B. Crawford uh, was speaking about. So Crawford's uh, argument had to do with the, the sort of the uh, the prerequisite of self command for. Uh, basically 
virtuous citizenship. Okay, so in order for anyone to participate in the political order in a meaningful uh, way as a moral agent, you have to have command of yourself. Yeah. So this uh, reflects both the classic and the Christian understandings of the order of the self. So let's go back. Let's kind of just retreat from the metaphysic into the anthropology of it. So traditionally, you know, we've we've talked about human beings as being composite, but ordered. So there is a mental or intellectual component. There's an effective component, and then there's the appetite. So there's a kind of hierarchy with the with the the prudent prudential judgment being exercised uh, at the top, corresponding to the head, right? The heart corresponding with you know, being, uh, being an expression or sort of the, the symbol of the affections in the center, and then the appetites and the nether regions of the body, uh, the drives, the, the you know, those, those things, uh, they're uh, subject to both the affections and the, the judgment. And that's, the, that's a well-ordered person, according to Plato and according to the apostles. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you know, when Paul says, you know, their God is their stomach, he's yeah. not saying that as a compliment. <laughs> he's, yeah. he's saying that these people are just controlled by their appetites. They're like animals. They're not really yeah. human. Uh, they're yeah. not uh, ordered in the way that God expects us to be ordered. So there has to be uh, this kind of hierarchy for a, uh, a healthy human being to, to, as you noted, Tom, flourish, but also to interact with other people in a way that's mutually enriching. Otherwise, you end up with, you know, tyranny and, and the passions, the destructive passions just sort of creating what? The kind of conflict that the Apostle James says, you know, why are there, you know, why, 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 why do you have all this, this uh, conflict, conflict in the church? Because it's your passions are at war within you. Right. And, and, and it's interesting because it talks about that, the, you know, the destructive passions of unity. And this is something I don't think I don't hear a lot in the church talk about is the way in which the divisions that develop in the church often and much less the divisions of, that, that break down community and, and culture and society are very much tied to this very thing. And that this is a great point. I mean, when he talks about anger. You know, um, not, whenever you're you're merely angry at your brother for the wrong reason, right? So there's this constant examination of things that are are very commonplace. You know, there is a place for righteous anger, yeah. um, righteous indignation. So there is a there is an anger outlet and orienting it the right way. But there is that unhealthy. You know, in the same way they, you know, when scripture will talk about lust. You know, the same thing. It's it's not enough merely to be having. That, that somebody is having, uh, you know, committing adultery, but when they lust in their heart. So this goes back a lot of steps. And so Christianity is very concerned. And then, then you know, and this is where that connection goes that we talked about before, Colossians, right? Because you are heavenly minded, therefore on earth put off anger, malice, these things, and put on Christ, right? The fruit of the Spirit, which, you know, allows you to transcend that, that those lower instincts and appetites that are fallen and uh yeah. and, and and as you note that that doesn't mean that we never uh 
you know, sort of uh, enjoy the goods of this yeah. world, our yeah. appetites are given to us by God, and they're yes. to, to to be satisfied in a lawful way, yeah. not denied completely. So asceticism, I think, yeah. can go way overboard, but yeah. we're not in that moment. <laughs> yeah. It's you know, like Augustine will put it this way: it's so that you can enjoy those creaturely things the right way. Yeah, um, that's his, so that you don't turn them into gods, if you will, that you or or things that you're enslaved to. Um, and when you don't, then you can you can actually receive them as the good gifts they are and celebrate them at, in, in a sacramental and and you know a sacramental yeah. way. I this, this brings an example to mind. I remember I had a conversation with uh, a family member years ago, and she uh, was disturbed by uh, the fact that I owned uh, guns, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I said. Uh, um, and in just uh, physical conflict in general, she was she just didn't like the this 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 uh, this prospect. And I said, <laughs> well, um, let's say uh, we're in a situation where we're threatened, uh, and I'm the largest person uh, in our group. Uh, would you want me to do my best to defend us? And she said, Oh yes, of course. Well, I said, How do you do that without practice? <laughs> you know, what you, what you end up with is uh, this kind of goofy, um, you know, uh, earnest effort that is just easily thwarted because you've just never done anything that would get you used to doing what needed to be done in a set, setting where, you know, something like this would be called for. And likewise, I think that there, the problem with asceticism taken to the extremes that we've seen in the past and what Luther was, you know, sort of rejecting is an asceticism that's gone way overboard and has rejected the goods of the body and so forth. That's not where we are at this moment in time. Uh, we've given ourselves so we've given ourselves over to the our appetites to such a degree. Uh, I think this is actually a healthy development. This is this interest in self denial that we see cropping up in you know unexpected places. Glenn. Yeah. Um, first of all, an observation or a question, I suppose, is your desire to practice the reason why you like going to Waffle House? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. C.S. Lewis at one point uh, said that the problem with being an alcoholic, this is paraphrased, was that you could no longer enjoy the feeling of being pleasantly intoxicated. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's you know, and, 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 you know, there, you know it, it's one of these things that would make a lot of my Christian friends cringe, yeah. but there's a real point being made there. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that when, when you are controlled by those appetites, you no longer enjoy them. Right. The interesting thing that, Actually, where I think a lot of this ends up starting in, in a kind of weird way is Japan. Hmm. For years, Japan was known at, well, I, I ran into an article in a, um, uh, a travel magazine that said, it, it, the, the premise was, if you want to indulge in the seven deadly sins, which cities in Asia or which countries in Asia should you visit? And they had it all, all categorized, but lust was Japan. Really? Wow. 
then suddenly things start turning around and you get people in Japan who are just utterly uninterested in sex. Right. Right. Major movement over the last few years. Right. Mm. I think it's too messy. It has too much uh, emotional baggage attached to it. I don't want to bother with it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a term for it. I think it's, they've referred to them as herbivores because they, they have rejected the flesh uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know the terminology there, but the interesting thing is it, it's, the, it's part of the dynamic that you're talking about, that they yeah. were just so over, oversated with it right. that they're just moving in the opposite direction. Yeah, And I, I think to some extent that may be part of the dynamic we're seeing in the manosphere now. Yeah. Except yeah. with a more, with, I would argue, with a more positive dimension to it in that it's, hey, guys, Let's get our lives under control. Yeah, I think that's the that's the best part of it. But I think you're you're right. Uh, there are dangers here, and maybe what is called for is um, a kind of sane, reformed asceticism, if that's a, a, a way of putting it that, that people can actually digest. <laughs> if you know what I'm getting at, because when when. When we now, in one sense, people when they think of the Reformed tradition do think of self-denial. I mean, yeah. we think of Puritanism. People yeah. assume that the Puritans were all about self-denial. We know that there's an, there's another reality. The Puritans enjoyed the goods of this world in ways that yeah. people are largely ignorant about. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, they I think they had a good mix. They they knew when to say no and they knew how to say yes. Yeah. And maybe that's what we have to teach the world. There is, there is a, a, a need to deny ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, but how do you do that in a, in a good way? You know, the, when, when the, when the um, Dobbs decision came down and uh, abortion was no longer guaranteed by the Supreme Court, one of the things that, that I ran into is women saying things like, well... If we can't get abortions, then we're, well, I'm not going to have sex with anybody who isn't willing to raise the child. <laughs> and, and I was like, go for sounds, it. Sounds right to me. <laughs> yeah, so they've rediscovered traditional sexual morality uh, really fast. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, and 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 how <laughs> and look at you know, look at the, uh, the the consequences that would come when people start practicing with those kind of boundaries and restraints. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, it, I mean, I teach a course regularly at Gordon Conwell, and I'll be teaching it again this term on social, you know, Christian faith and social ethics, and and you can pretty much spell. You, you can you can pretty much see when certain boundaries are ignored in a society um, and the consequences unfold, um, you can exactly see why we're in so many of the messes that we're in. And we keep trying to alleviate these messes by, by again, you know, putting bandages on, on things, but never dealing re really with a deep wound. And people will just refuse to address those those things, like the, you know, the very core of things, fam, the way God ordered it, and 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 spells it out for us, and and asceticism in its healthy modes is a way of of protecting those boundaries and and affirming them and orienting ourselves to embrace them. Um, it it is it is a self denial 
of those things that otherwise drive us to to kind of not commit and orient ourselves to those God-given boundaries and orders. Yeah. So I guess the, the, the thing that maybe we, I'd like to wrap this conversation up uh, uh, with is, uh, is thinking about how maybe we can uh, speak to this moment. How can we address let's just limit ourselves to the manosphere. So in case people are wondering what the manosphere is, the manosphere is a part of the internet generally where men uh, just kind of uh, forget about the social conventions and the um, polite forms of speech (laughs) that you have to uh, 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 remember to keep yourselves, uh, you know, sort of committed to in mixed company where, where guys are just saying what's really on their minds. (laughs) <laughs> you know, we used to have that kind of stuff all the time in locker rooms, in gentlemen's clubs. It's getting harder and harder to find spaces where you, where men just kind of say what they actually think. Um, but the manosphere is one of those places where you still have that. Um, so let's say, you know, we're invited to speak at a conference uh, addressing uh, men who are part of the manosphere. And uh, we're given... A, uh, the opportunity to address the, the matter of self-denial uh, and the Christian faith. Anything that you guys think would be important for us to, to say to those guys? Because I imagine some of those guys will be listening to us. You know, we get about 10,000 downloads and, you know, I, I imagine some people in the Manosphere listen to us on occasion. So what do we have to say to those guys? Hmm. Yeah, I I would go with where I went before that, you know, the, between the two extremes of Gnosticism, you find Christianity, where there is in a very real way, a kind of asceticism, a kind of self-denial. Jesus says, unless you deny yourself, you can't be my follower. Um, you know, so so that is present. But at the same time, there's a recognition that the creation is good. And that if it's used in the right way, it's a good and healthy thing. Mm -hmm. And so what I would say we need to do is, yes, by all means, reject the lies that the world is pushing on you that do, in fact, make you weak. Right. But at the same time, channel that into ways that are positive and constructive. You know, there is nothing wrong with sex in the right, in the right sphere, in the, within the right boundaries. Just like everything else in the world, there are boundaries to everything. Yeah. And a, a proper asceticism is really, I think, a matter of living within those boundaries and not yeah. transgressing them. And that's what we're really talking about here. Right, right. Anything, Tom, you want to say? I mean, I think Glenn hit it right on the nose, the boundary issue. It is a time to return to the, the significance of those boundaries that, that to maybe a place of connecting with them is to recognize that they're bumping up against something that is, is true to reality. And that is why what they're, what they're, they're having an inclination towards and, and going against certain kinds of instincts that they're recognizing are are unhealthy and uh, and need to be tamed and redirected and are being exploited and are undermining their life and their future um that 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 they're they've turned in into a healthy direction 
but especially the Christian faith and its rich ways of taking up what was always um, good in a lot of these classical traditions and, and bringing them into that fuller picture in Christ, um, I think is, is, is a set of resources they have um, unparalleled anywhere else. And, uh, and, and I think the church, it's good for the church to start thinking about what does this look like in our own life? Um, we do need to, our, all of us need to, as part of an indulgent culture, wean off of these things, you know, some unhealthy side effects of being in, in such a imminent frame and, and reorienting our, ourselves uh, to God and each other the right way and recognizing these boundaries and practices bound up with that kind of life, I think is, is uh, timely. Yeah, I would add one more thing, and that's that when what asceticism does is it reveals what controls you. Yeah. Fasting, any of those kinds of exercises, they will reveal what controls you. Yeah. And yeah. what we want to be is we want to be, we want to control ourselves. We don't want our passions to control us because those are some things that are not really who we are. Right. You know, it, it in Christian terms, um, Psalm 19, I think it ends with, uh, who can discern his errors, cleanse me from hidden faults, keep me from presumptuous or willful sins, let them not have dominion over me. Right? Yeah. Right. When you give yourself over to these kinds of things, you give them control over you. Yeah. They have dominion over you, and that's what we want to break. Yeah, I, yeah. I want to tie into that in my, in my final thoughts here. I think... A lot of guys that I interact with, both uh, inside and outside the church, get that. They know that they are more or less uh, the slaves of their appetites, and they want to be free. They, they really do. The question is how. So what I would do if I was asked to speak in an event like this is I'd say, okay, guys, we, let's just say that we are all on the same page with this question of uh, whether or not it's a good thing to have self-control and self-command. Now, now what? <laughs> well, this is where the practices, the ascetic practices come into play. And what you're trying to do is strengthen the self-command that you need in order to deny yourself when it comes to your appetites. You're going to fail. Okay. You're going to fail. But the, 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 the key here to keep in mind, the thing to keep in mind is, is the, 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 that uh, winning is determined by how many times you get up, not how many times you fail. There's that marvelous scene in Cool Hand Luke uh, where uh, Luke is fighting, uh, what was his name, George Kennedy, I think it was, uh, who plays... Uh, uh, kind of the kind of the big man in the prison, and uh, in the fight, uh, Kennedy keeps uh, uh, punching uh, Paul Newman and knocking him to the to the ground, and Newman just keeps getting up. <laughs> At a certain point, it's just, it is so brutal that all the people that were cheering for 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 uh, Kennedy just tell uh, Newman, "Stay down, stay down." And Newman says, you'll have to kill me. 
to keep the pounds. But <laughs> kept getting up. And in the end, he was the last man standing in the sense that even Kennedy at that point uh, recognized that his his inner strength was so so great that there was no way it could be overcome. And he becomes Newman's disciple <laughs> through the rest of the film. Newman actually wins that guy's heart because of his unwillingness to give up. And that's the thing that we were looking for. You just don't give up. Don't give up. Keep getting up. And with time, you really do grow stronger. You really do uh, grow more capable of controlling yourself in various situations. Well, I think what we all would love to be able to see ourselves doing is what Thomas Aquinas, uh, according to legend, did when, when his family took him and held him hostage and then brought the prostitute in to his, <laughs> his, uh, his room to try to seduce him. And he refused to be seduced. And, uh, you know, he wanted to be a Dominican and he wasn't about to allow his, his family to, to thwart his, his desire to serve God and become, well, you know, a doctor of the Catholic Church. <laughs> but, uh, I think we would all like to be able to say, I've got that kind of self-command. Uh, not that I just deny myself, you know, every pleasure, but that when I give myself over to those pleasures, I'm in command. I'm not just simply carried away by my desires. Anyway, that's, that was what I would, I would encourage the guys to pursue. And, of course, in order for that to happen, we need God's help. We need God's grace uh, because we are going to fail. We need forgiveness. We need the strength to get up again, to keep at it, uh, and to grow. And to, in order for all those things to happen, we need God's help. Anyway, that's how I'd end it. And I think we're pretty much at the end of the time of our, you know, for, for our conversation. Hey, thank and you. For listening. <laughs> so thank you for listening to the Theology Podcast. We appreciate your, your uh, interest in the show and making it to the end of another show. Uh, and uh, if you're interested in, uh, you know, learning more about the, the podcast or supporting us, you can do that through Patreon. Uh, we also are supported by people who uh, designate uh, the podcast as their as their show uh, that they like to support in the Fight Laugh Feast Network, and we appreciate uh, those folks who do that. Uh, and if you just want to, uh, you know, send us a note, we get we get email. I think almost like every day <laughs> from all over the world. We even and get a few. We even get a few nasty ones once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, right. But anyway, we, we, we do appreciate all that you uh, you do to, to help us keep the show running. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you enjoy The Theology Podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Pastor Rich Lusk. Rich theological discussion guaranteed to leave you edified.